I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. This episode of Live Wire is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving or cleaning, even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. And auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Welcome to LiveWire, everybody. I'm your host, Luke Burbank. Hope you're having a great week. We had a fun week. We did something that we'd never done before as a radio show. We went to Salt Lake City to record the show. Uh, We did it at the uh, City Library there. And I have to say, it is hands down one of the coolest public libraries I have ever been to. Highly recommend you check it out if you get the chance. I'd actually never been to Salt Lake City before, so it was a chance for me to see some of the sites there. I checked out Temple Square, which is amazing. I also decided I would jog up to the Utah State Capitol uh, building. I jogged very slowly because it's at the top of a giant hill. But when you get to the top of that giant hill, there are these incredible views of the entire valley. It's really kind of amazing up there. Um, So it was a great time in Salt Lake. I have to say, though, things did get off to sort of a weird start for me when I landed at the airport and I decided to use one of those ride sharing apps to try to get a ride to the hotel. Uh, Here's what happened. The thing about those apps, if you've ever used them, is you can actually see a little animation of the car as it's coming to pick you up. You can see where they are on the road. And I was watching as the animated car drove past me (laughs) and just kept going, which was super confusing because I thought we had sort of a business deal going, (laughs) me and Ryan. So... I called him and I said, I think you just drove past me. And he was like, yeah, I'm so sorry. I was in the wrong lane. And then the cop yelled at me and said, you have to keep going. So I have to make another loop. It's going to be like three more minutes. And I said, okay. And I hung up. Like I said, okay, in a way that was letting him know that I was a little bit annoyed about how this went. And so I waited another three minutes. And part of why I was a little crabby was because I've been traveling a lot this week. This is my third city in three days. I've been flying. I've been on like 10 different planes. I just wanted to get to the hotel and and get some rest. So I'm waiting there for another three minutes, and there's like no sign of Ryan. And so I call him back, and I'm like, where are you, dude? And he's like, I think I'm where I should be picking you up. Where are you? And I'm like, I'm under the sign that where you're supposed to be standing for this kind of stuff. And then I hung up. I was kind of mad. Now, I wasn't just like a little annoyed. I was like fully angry because if you've been tracking the timeline of this story, I had now been waiting for up to six minutes, (laughs) which as a typical American is an indignity that I will no longer suffer in my life. So I hang up and I I formulate a new plan, which is I'm going to just cancel the ride and give the guy like zero stars and just wait for somebody who knows what they're doing to pick me up. So I'm about to do it. I have the phone out and he pulls up. He's like, I'm here. So I was like, okay, fine. So he gets my stuff. We get it into the car. I get in there. He's apologizing. I'm being kind of a little bit cold. Like I want to let him know that I'm still a little bit annoyed about this. Right. And so I say, how did you not know where to pick me up? Like, is this your first time at the airport? And he goes, yeah, it is actually. I've been doing this for three days. 
I said, well, why did you decide to get into the rideshare game? And he said, desperation. <laughs> he goes, I, uh, I was managing a movie theater two weeks ago, and I got laid off. And I have a wife and four kids, and I have a mortgage due at the end of the month, and I don't exactly know what I'm going to do, so this is the best thing I can think of. Believe me, it was even more intense in the car <laughs> than it is right here. And I, in that moment, I realized that, like, had I done that capricious, spoiled thing of canceling the ride, it would have had a hugely negative impact on his life because when I asked him how it was going as a, as a driver, he said, well, it's fine, but I don't really know what I'm doing yet, and I don't know Salt Lake City that great. I live about an hour out of town, so people keep giving me low ratings. And my rating right now is a 4.8 out of 5. And if it goes to 4.7, then I'm not allowed to drive anymore. And I was going to give him a zero. <laughs> I was like a nanosecond from ending this guy's one ability to put any kind of food on his family's table. And in that moment, I, all of my annoyance about my life and the, you know what I was actually steamed about going into this? The overhead compartment was full and I had to check my bag at the gate. That was the main problem in my life when I got into the car with Ryan. And so we drive to the hotel and we have this like really great conversation and he's stressing out because he feels like he's always been a breadwinner and now he's not and he wonders what his wife thinks about that. Like things got deep. And as I tried to encourage him and everything, as the, as the ride ended, I was thinking, man, I was thinking about my impression of this guy before I got into that car and my impression as I was ending the trip with him. And it was like eight minutes had completely radically changed how I was relating to this guy. And I was like, man, we think we know why other people are doing what they're doing. Like there's a person with 13 items in the line for 10 items. It's very easy to write a story about what someone's motivations are, but we don't have any idea what's going on with other people, right? And like, would it be the worst thing if we just gave people like the benefit of the doubt more, right? So I, I get out of the van, I say goodbye to him, and I'm walking into the hotel, and I just was overwhelmed with this real gratefulness for my life, for the fact that I have a job, for the fact that I get to do this. I get to be here with all of you in Salt Lake City. And it was just like a really powerful moment for me. Um, I still gave him zero stars because he was very late, <laughs> and you can't have that um, in a professional environment. But... I did not do that, and I gave him five stars. And by the way, if anybody leaving this show is taking a lift and a guy named Ryan in a Dodge minivan picks you up, give him five stars. Seriously, the stakes are very high for him with this, okay? All right, let's do the show. All right, our theme this week on the show, because we're here in Salt Lake is west of ordinary. But ordinary is not a word that's ever been used to describe our first guest. The first time I heard Scott Carrier on This American Life, I completely stopped what I was doing and I just started staring at my radio. His voice was different, the subject matter he was talking about, which was his own unquiet mind, that was different. The whole thing just blew me away. And I'm not the only one who noticed he's won a Peabody Award, he's written books, he also produces a really amazing podcast called Home of the Brave. Please welcome Scott Carrier to Livewire. Scott, welcome to the show. Thanks, Luke. It's good to be here. What was the first thing that you made? What was the first radio piece you made? Well, I, was hitch I decided to hitchhike from here to Washington, where NPR is based, and just show up, basically. <laughs> Did you have an appointment? I ha I s I'd sent them a letter. Uh, <laughs> I think I addressed it to whom it may concern. <laughs> I didn't know it was really difficult to actually just walk in the door. Um, we're now in the era where people don't really hitchhike anymore because it's, it's seen as unsafe. But in the yeah. day, a lot of people hitchhiked, and you would usually get a free story, right, from the person who'd picked you up. Would they pick you up sometimes because they kind of wanted to yeah, unload? Definitely. Yeah, they were lonely. They wanted to talk to somebody. 
Yeah, it was quite a bit different back then. A lot more people hitchhiking, young people. It was very common for young people to hitchhike. And um, I could hitchhike a thousand miles a day back then, as far as I could drive in a day. How do you, how would you broach the topic of wanting to record their voices? Like, it's already a little bit of a personal situation. You're getting into their car and now you're like, oh, and I brought this device. Yeah. Right. Well, uh, it never happened to any of them before. They'd never been on TV, as they say. Right. They don't realize it's just a radio thing, but... Um... It is <laughs> remarkable how many people think they're on, on television on if television. you put a radio microphone in their yeah. face. It's the, it's the most common reaction is, when will this be on TV? Right. People like it. People like to have, you know, be able to tell their stories. So I showed up in Washington with a bunch of interviews. I kind of poured out on the table like fish I'd caught. Just, so they let you into the building at NPR? They let me into the building, but yeah. It was a different time, Alex man. Alex Chadwick, he let me in. He told me years later just because they wanted to make fun of me and then tell me to go away. But... um. It was just after their morning meeting, and they were kicking back, telling jokes, you know, where they decide what they're going to play that day on the show. And the phone rang from the lobby because I'd convinced the security guard to, you know, let's just call them. So he called, and Alex answered, and he was the only person there at NPR at that time who would have let me in. And it just happened to be Alex who was working that morning, and he answered the phone, and he let me come up and pitch my idea thinking that, oh, this is going to be a really crazy person. We can laugh at him and then tell him to go away. And It's funny. The audience here seems to feel bad for you, but it turned out, okay, you're on the stage. You're I am. a I respected Peabody-winning journalist. Yeah. So it's everything's okay. We have to take a real quick break. We have Scott Carrier here. He is the, the host and producer of Home of the Brave. Uh, this is Livewire from PRI. We're coming to you this week from the City Library in Salt Lake City, and we will be right back. Livewire gets support from Fully. Would you like to start your own Livewire radio and podcast operation? Okay. Uh, it's fairly simple, actually. The first thing, you got to get a theater. You got to get a live band. You got to get a live audience. Uh, you got to get the microphones. That's a biggie. Um, I don't know where you get any of that stuff, to be honest with you. Other very qualified people handle that. I do know where you can get the furniture that I use when I'm hosting the show. That is the Jarvis sit-stand desk and also the Capisco stool. I get both of those at Fully. Fully is an awesome company based in Portland, Oregon, and they make all kinds of stuff that will help you stay productive but still engaged. You don't have to sit in an old-fashioned office chair. I don't even want to say those words. Behind an old-fashioned desk like uh, you're in some instructional video from the 1950s and just feel your spine compressing and your muscles turning to jello. It's another thing we don't need to bring along from the 50s. But I digress. Point is... Fully makes all kinds of cool stuff that helps you stay productive, but keeps you engaged, keeps your blood flowing. Even at my house where I live, up in old Bellingham, Washington, I sit on a TikTok stool from the folks at Fully. Uh, you really do need to see what they are doing over at fully.com slash livewire. They've outfitted all of the livewire offices with Fully equipment, and it's just made everybody there so happy and productive you almost can't believe it. You may be many, many steps away from starting your own Livewire radio show, but at least in the productivity department, you can do exactly what we've done, and you can use the great stuff they're making over at Fully. Again, head to fully.com slash Livewire to find out more. Welcome back to Livewire from PRI. I'm your host, Luke Burbank. Our theme this week is West of Ordinary. We're coming to you from the City Library in Salt Lake City. And our guest is Scott Carrier, writer and radio producer and the person behind the Home of the Brave podcast. I've been listening to a ton of the podcast of late, and it is fascinating. It's also really political. Yeah. Um, and that's like not the kind of thing you could maybe do for This American Life as overtly. Um, yours is very much how you really feel about the current president and, uh, you know, Hillary supporters and, and, and lots of different political forces that have gone on. Um, is that part of why you wanted to do the podcast? So you could, you could talk about stuff the way you wanted to talk about it? Uh, yeah, uh, to be able to say things that aren't being said in the corporate media very much, or at all. Yeah, thanks. I may regret asking this question, but like, what kind of stuff are you thinking of? Give me one example. Like, what is a thing? I mean, this 
quite seriously, what's, uh, what is a story that you think is not getting enough coverage that you're able to cover through the podcast? Short answer would be, I don't think we hear the word oligarchy enough. I think we should hear that word more. Uh, and the last episode I did, a friend of, of mine, Alex Caldero, and I went to the Utah Data Center where they download basically everybody's information, communications, all around the world, every day, 24-7, just 20 miles south of here. There's a structure, the Utah Data Center. So Alex and I went down and just sort of looked at it. From <laughs> What does it look like? It just looks like about nine Costco's pressed together into one, <laughs> one place. Is it possible it's just one Costco and you guys got slightly off track? Was anyone coming out with Kirkland brand jeans yeah, on? Ikea. It's next to the Ikea in the state prison. I'm told that it's deep underground, that the servers actually go deep, deep underground. So. How long have you lived in Salt Lake? <sighs> 51 years. Wow. What do, you, what do you like about this place? I like being able to look out, the, uh, out across the whole valley at night or in the morning. That's you know, because we live in a valley and pretty much anywhere in the valley you can see everywhere else. And that's really nice. What do you not like about, about living here? Well, it has a problem with kind of everything kind of always stays the same. <laughs> Nothing changes too much. It's a good thing and a bad thing. It's, Salt Lake City is an easy place to leave and it's an easy place to come back to. Because it's kind of like just how you left it. <laughs> <laughs> right? Scott Carrier, everyone. His podcast is Home of the Brave. All right, Scott, so much of your writing and, and your life experience has happened out here in the West. Right. Um, and our, our theme this hour is West of Ordinary. We were wondering, though, how well do you really know the West? All right. So we did a little research on some places that are west of the Mississippi that have unusual names. All right. And we want you to tell us if they are real U.S. towns or if they are fake ones that we have made up. It is a game that we're calling You Named Your Town What? Fake town names. Some of them are real and some are fake. So I'm going to give you the name of a town and you try to guess if it's a real place or if it's something that we made up. Got it. Pretty straightforward. I think right. I can do this. Okay. Mitochondria, Nevada. Yeah, that's true. 100% false. We made that up. It does sound like a thing that would exist though, right? Yeah, it does. Kinda. How about Dick Shooter, Idaho? Well, I'll just say yeah, for sure. Definitely. You are 100% right, Scott Carrier. As Johnny from our band pointed out earlier, you know it's real because we would never write something called right. Dick Shooter and try to put it on public radio. Right. It's a real place in Idaho. It is named for Dick Shooter, who established a homestead there. Ah, of course, right. An early Mormon pioneer. I, uh... All right. Uh, Slaughterville, Oklahoma. Slaughterville, Oklahoma. Sounds appropriate, doesn't it? Um, <laughs> I'll say no. Sorry, bud. Slaughterville, Oklahoma is a very real place. It was named after a grocery store owner named James Slaughter. At some point, PETA offered to donate, this is real, $20,000 in veggie burgers to their school district if they would change it to Veggieville, Oklahoma. <laughs> they declined on the basis of not having a school district. Wow. wow. How about Smuggler's Ditch, Washington? I would have liked to have heard of some of these towns. I've never heard of any of them. Smuggler's Ditch, Washington. Yes, someone's whispering from the audience. All right, yes. Never trust oh. the audience. <laughs> We made that up. Smugglers did. But it, again, it has the ring of truth to it. Um, how about Boring Oregon? Yes. 
Everybody's yes. agreeing on that. Boring Oregon, real place. Here's what you may not know about Boring Oregon. And again, we did not make this up. This is real information. Boring Oregon is the sister city of bland Australia and dull Scotland. I like how they're really leaning into that. They're just like, there's got to be some other towns that have equally questionable names. Are you trying to think of a weird town name? Yeah. Yeah, what is like, I mean, you've been well, got... on, on every highway and byway in the West. What if, what's the weirdest town name? Uh, Panguitch is a weird name for Panguitch, Utah. What's, what goes on in Panguitch, Utah? Not much, precious <laughs> little, uh... Well, Scott, you did pretty well. You got like 50-50, even though the audience did help you, but we're going to call it a win. Scott Carrier, everyone. The podcast is home of the brave. Thanks, Scott. Livewire is brought to you in part by Whole Foods Market, with meat and seafood traceable to the source, whether it's farmed or wild-caught. Because finding out where dinner came from shouldn't feel like an episode of The Twilight Zone. Learn more at WholeFoodsMarket.com. Welcome back to Livewire Radio from PRI. My name is Luke Burbank. I'm your host. Our theme this hour is West of Ordinary, and our musical guest is no ordinary 15-year-old. He was busking out in front of the Sundance Film Festival when he was 11, He's been hailed as an Americana prodigy, and he just released his first full-length album, which is titled, I Am Nice. And how could he not be, being from just down the road in Ogden? Please welcome Sammy Brood, Alive Wire. Hi, Sammy. Welcome to the show. This is great. I'm so, I'm so happy to be here right now. When you were young and you were busking, did you ever feel self-conscious or embarrassed or did it just feel really natural to you to be out performing at a young age particularly in public on like a street corner a lot of kids would feel nervous about that i was very nervous actually but i just kept like telling myself i'm like this is how it's gonna happen you're gonna have to start from that bottom and you know doing it everywhere i can even in park city where all the big wigs are you know that's that's how we did it <laughs> we went up there and i just played in like 20 de degree weather with just me and a guitar stomping around and yelling. <laughs> For people that don't know, busking is when, you know, you just get out on the street corner, you play your music. Do you put a hat out when you do it or your guitar case or anything? Uh, in desperate times, yes. Uh, How desperate I do times get as a 15-year-old, Sammy? <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty rough out here, man. It's pretty rough. But uh, I did just turn 16. Oh, my goodness. Happy birthday. Thank you, thank you. <laughs> Where do you want to take this whole thing? Like, what would, what would feel to you like a, a, a successful career in music? I think I'm trying to be a generational man. Like, <laughs> As in, you want to <laughs> be the songwriter you know? of your generation? Yes, I want people to really try to understand me, and I try to understand them, and it's all just one big, beautiful thing. Well, on that note, Sammy, what are we going to hear? Uh, I'm going to play a song called I Know. All right. This is Sammy Brew on Livewire. Get the cash And I know I know You're 
this endless sea I know Change my life for just one wish. You change my life with just one kiss. I have a set of different eyes, and I'm not in a disguise. So you know that I know you're the one for me. I know a million people. Here we are. Well, I love you, but I'm so far. That's okay, 'cause I'm a mess. But I'm not here to impress, so you know that I know you're the one for me, and I know for all those people who don't mess around, never guess what I found. I can. I told all the girls that I'm sad. Now they think that I'm the man, but I know, I know you're the one for me. I know. His latest album is "I Am Nice." This is Livewire. We are coming to you from Salt Lake City. Our theme is "West of Ordinary." What do you get when you combine speed and smarts? The obvious answer is a cheetah. The thing is, though, there's a lot of insurance around that, and the uh, Salt Lake City Library was a, pretty much a hard pass. But we've got the next best thing. We have Olympic gold medalist Peekaboo Street. She's also the founder of the Peekaboo Street Academy. She is a role model to young student athletes everywhere. And unlike the cheetah, we don't have to have a trank dart up here when she comes on stage. Please welcome Peekaboo Street to Livewire. Peekaboo, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's awesome to be here. What was your childhood like? Like, what was the first time you got on skis? I got on skis. I think it was five and a half the first time I ever skied. Did you? I mean, you're a little kid. It's probably hard to remember exactly back to those days. But did you <laughs> feel like you were super good right away? No, I had no idea. Well, the first time I ever rode up the chairlift with my brother, and it was back when they had like the pole in the middle. So I'm like literally hanging onto the pole in the middle for dear life because I'm afraid my brother's going to push me off. So by the time I got to the to the top, I was so angry that I just turned and pointed him straight to the bottom, and literally went straight. And then hockey stopped and didn't fall down. And my brother came down and said, "You know you can turn." I said, "Yeah, I tried a couple of those. They just slowed me down." <laughs> and that was it from the get go. And I didn't even like take a moment to be scared or check it twice. I just <clears throat> I was mad and I went. What was it about a, a five-year-old Peekaboo Street that just like <laughs> was it? A physical thing? Was it a mental thing? Why did you take to it so quickly? Oh, um, I think the the sense of having control over something that seems like it should be out of control was a big one for me,、uh, and then constantly being out on that edge, constantly pushing the boundaries, constantly pushing the limits, and seeing what I was capable of. What was the age where 
skiing really became like the centerpiece of your life. Like you moved down here to Salt Lake. I did. At some point to what, go to like Hogwarts of ski schools <laughs> or something? <laughs> something like that, yeah. I attended Roland Hall St. Mark School and the Rollmark Ski Academy here for my freshman year of high school. Yes, and I absolutely loved it. It's in fact when I fell in love with learning at school. So, um, but I was chasing out a program that met my needs that I thought I needed as an athlete to to develop and be one of the ones that the US ski team looked at and said, let's pull you in, because they had a really solid development program at that point. Uh, this is Livewire Radio from PRI. We're talking to Olympic gold medalists of Peekaboo Street. Um, is that experience of being a kid who was really serious about skiing, but also wanted to get some kind of education, was that part of your calculation on this Peekaboo Street Academy that you started? Absolutely. When I first retired from skiing, I wanted to give back immediately because I had been given the, you know, the pass to play, so to speak. I had a silent donor in Idaho. Um, wait, wait, wait. So, so at some point when you were getting really serious and there's a lot of costs associated with skiing, oh, so many. somebody who you didn't know just said, I'm going to underwrite this. Kind of, sort of knew him. Um, and he was paying attention to what was happening. And it was obvious that I had talent without the means to match it. So yeah, he was my silent donor for three years. He paid for my tuition to ski for Sun Valley Ski Education Foundation. And then I was named to the US national team, taking advantage of, of that funding. And my career went from there. But that bug bit me instantaneously. It was like uh, someone else paid for me to get to play. And so it was that need to turn it around and pay it forward has been insatiable all along throughout my career. So explain how the academy works. What do you guys actually do? So the academy is a blended learning model. So it's, it's pretty progressive in the education system. Um, kids are specializing at a younger age today than they did before. They're also competing or training year round in that sport. It's not just a seasonal thing. So what we do is the, at the academy is offer them an opportunity to go to school on their time, at their pace, we meet them where they're at. So they come into the academy and work at the times when it works best for them. And then they can, they can also do their, their skiing or their skating or whatever it may be, their extracurricular passion. They can do it um, on the time that it's necessary for them and then they can study when it's, it's appropriate. You mentioned that like, uh, you know, kids are getting more specialized earlier. Are we putting too much pressure on kids? who are, show talent in various things, whether it's skiing or skating? We're noticing that they choose it themselves. By age 12, 13, 14, they've already chosen their extracurricular passion and they've started to specialize in it. And now it's a process of figuring out how do we facilitate that for them? How do we time, help them time manage? Um, I, uh, I've watched skiing on TV. I've watched the Olympics. I've watched you compete in the Olympics. Right. I have always wondered though, what is going through your mind in that moment when you're up in the starting gate <laughs> and that little three, two, one countdown is happening and it's about, you're just about to push off. Like what's in your mind at that moment? At that point, I've gone back to clear, right? So I've built up to, to it and then I've gone open back up and just feel the zone again, right? I've done my prep, I've done my visualization, I've listened to my music, and then once you get in the gate, you click in and you get ready to go, it's clearing your mind and then replacing any fear point in the course with a, with a really detailed task at hand, and that's how you get through the run. You did things that no female skier from the US had ever done previously. I mean, you had incredible accomplishments. What do you think, and lots of people had tried. What? <laughs> What was different about you? Like, why were you able to, to, to set these records and to win these events in a way that, that nobody before you ever had from this country? You know, I don't know the answer to that necessarily because Tamara McKinney was, was my idol and I still get bleh, 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 fumbly when I get around her because she was such an inspiration for me. But, you know, in, in her time, it seemed to me like she had won everything there was to win and I had these, these huge goals to reach. And then I kind of forged along and went through her path and then out into the powder field a little ways myself. And then Lindsey Vaughn came along and tranced through mine super quickly and boom, she's like, where'd she go, Bill? Um, so I, I feel kind of proud of how I made it possible for, for girls to love ski racing. Um, they ended up in kind of a, an equal spot now. I think girls and guys are looked at equally as, as um, champions and superstars in the sport. And um, I like the idea of little girls, you know, knowing that they can be strong. Um, and paving, <laughs> thank you, and paving the way for them to, 
you know, to, to go out and chase their dreams. But the most important thing about it for me is not necessarily them just getting a chance to chase that dream, but it's about developing the person that they are inside as a human being along that path. That's what's so beautiful about PSA, Peekaboo Street Academy, because we're holistically carrying these kids and saying, hey, we're a part of your journey, the entire thing. Uh, we're talking to Peekaboo Street, Olympic gold medalist uh, here on Livewire Radio. Our theme this week is uh, West of Ordinary. We're coming to you from the City Library in Salt Lake City. Um, I was asking you about what your state of mind is when you're about to start on a run. Um, uh, you also, you suffered a, a particularly gruesome injury when you were in Switzerland. And I'm wondering, yeah. you just apologize to the audience. I did, because like, if anybody saw it, they were like, well, oh, that was, it was I mean, painful. It was, and it was, it was intense to watch. Um, what goes through your mind? It was sort of one of those like ABC wide world of sports, oh, yeah. the agony of defeat. I, it was, to me, when I saw it, the first thing I thought is, oh, all the, all the pain that people felt in their heart and their belly when they heard me scream when I realized I'd broken my femur. It was pretty, it was a pretty aggressive crash. Um, so when I went into that jump in Crowns, Montana, I misgaged how, what trajectory I was going to have when I went off the jump. So I ended up jumping further to the left and a lot further than I expected to because those skis wouldn't let up. They kept hooking, 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 turning, turning, turning. I was like, let go. And when they finally let go, I was way off to the left kind of scrambling to get forward on the jump. And like, what is your brain telling you as you realize <laughs> this is what's really happening? A lot of things, a lot of things cross your mind really fast because a lot of stuff's being processed quickly anyway. Believe it or not, I went into control mode, which is how can I best control this crash and not kill myself? Literally, it crosses your mind. So you start going into, okay, this is what I thought. I'm gonna kick my feet out to the right and I'm gonna just kind of skim down the fence and you know I'll end up down there in the powder somewhere. Oh, there's the outside gate, that's not gonna work. That's gonna hit me about mid thigh, bring me around face first into the net and probably hit, hit my chin and my, and my face guard and break my neck and kill me. So I probably shouldn't do that. Let's kick him out to the left and see if we can't get spun all the way around and go in bases first to hit the fence bases first and absorb it that way, right? I want maximum absorption. Yeah, no, the tips. That's what all these people do when right? they're crashing. Right, that's what you do? Competitive ski event. I went in tips, all know what you're talking tips about. first, and this one went under and this one came up. And I just went into the fence and then spun me back out that way and everything was numb afterwards. And I've tried and tried to actually feel the sensation of the femur break, but I cannot remember it. So I have that's the shock block probably that for happened. the best. I guess, but I am kind of want to, like... I keep searching. I do. I keep trying to like feel if it, you know, feel what it would feel like because I can remember all three of my knees blowing apart and that sensation. So I just, I don't know. I kind of wanted it, but denied so far. So we just keep trying. That may be your brain protecting you. It could peekaboo. be heaven for. Uh, do you yeah. have? I mean, this was all worth it when you talk about <laughs> knee explosions and femurs cracking. Was this all worth it? It's part of the territory. Absolutely. Yeah. And um, when I look back on. The ride, absolutely worth it because of the of the thrill of the start to the finish. It's irreplaceable. The the rush of owning a downhill course like that and milking every little piece of terrain for what it had to give me. Honestly, I I looked at it like faster, faster, not fast enough all the time. That was my mentality all the time, and um, so that's a super awesome memory for me. But but very selfish. I think what I like is the inspiration that I was able to give people throughout my career. You know, the legacy that I left behind is way more important than my ride. Um, Thank you. I want to I wanna offer you a chance to burnish that legacy a little bit more right here. I am, <laughs> I'm going to go skiing this winter for the first time. I'm 41 years old. I have never been skiing. Mm. As an Olympic gold medalist. Is your fear factor high? Um, not particularly. Do you have any, as an Olympic gold medalist, do you have any advice for me? A 41-year-old, reasonably just, out of shape man. You just tell him to point him time. and go, right? Is that that's what we, that worked for me? Ah. Um, the biggest piece of advice I would give you is your hands are like children, and if you let them out of your sight, they're going to get you in trouble. So the main thing when you're skiing is to keep your hands in front of you where you can see them at all times, especially because your center of mass as a man is in your chest. Okay. Okay, so if you get your arms floating around, your chest is going to go and it's translating to your skis and they're going to catch up and you're going to sit down. So know where my hands are at all times. At all times. This is awesome. I feel very ready for this winter. <laughs> Peekaboo Street, everyone. Thank you.
Livewire is brought to you in part by Alaska Airlines. Now, people may think Alaska Airlines only flies from cold to colder, but with 1,200 daily flights and 118 destinations, Alaska Airlines is a gateway from the West Coast to the world. Learn more at alaskaairlines.com. This is Livewire Radio. We're coming to you this week from the City Library in Salt Lake. Our theme is West of Ordinary. And our next guest doesn't seem to be interested in the status quo. His work tends to document people who are trying to make life happen on their own terms, like a guy living in a cave in Moab who doesn't believe in using money, or families who've moved off the grid because they've decided that the consumer industrial complex might not, and I hope everybody's sitting down for this, might not be making us super happy. Uh, his latest book is The Unsettlers. Please welcome Mark Sundin to Livewire. Welcome to the show, Mark. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Um, I just read two of your books, The Man Who Quit Money and The Unsettlers, and they were both totally fascinating to me. Thank um, you. Let's start with the newer one, The Unsettlers. It follows a number of different families who have basically refused to embrace what, what we kind of think of as normal life. Um, tell me about the Possibility Alliance in Missouri. What is going on there? Uh, the Possibility Alliance is a community that's centered with uh, one family with two young daughters and uh, other maybe five to ten people live there and they're on an 80 acre farm. They don't use cars. They don't use electricity. They don't even use solar electricity. So they don't have light bulbs. They don't have um, phones, uh, cell phones or internet or computers. And as if that weren't enough, they're also practicing... Um, Nonviolent resistance, so they go out to uh, nuclear weapons factories and get arrested. They ride their bikes to the to the nuclear weapons facility and they get arrested, trying to block the production. Um, you write in a really compelling way in the book about the husband and wife who started this place. Like they take a train to Missouri, and they like and she's pregnant. And it's like the middle of the night, and they're riding their bikes to this farm that they have bought sight unseen on the internet to start this thing. <laughs> Well, they didn't buy it on the internet because they didn't use the internet. They bought it on the phone, oh. on a landline. Uh, really? <laughs> yeah. So they were like, even before they got there, they were trying to eschew some of this technology. Yeah, they'd have been living similar to this for a couple years. Um, but then they took this about 40-hour train trip, and they were dropped off in a little town called La Plata, Missouri, at uh, 10 o'clock in the night. It was very cold, below freezing. They assembled their bicycles that were in um, cardboard boxes, and they rode into the night... Uh, five miles down a dirt road and um, eventually found this farm that they had bought. And yeah, like you say, she was five months pregnant at the time. And like, what, I mean, what is their goal with this? Because you went and stayed with them and like kind of lived that life. I mean, what are they trying to do with this, with this way of living? I would say their goal is, is total human fulfillment. They want to be happy and they didn't like what uh, normal society had to offer. Um, they thought that most uh, gadgets and plastic things were ugly, and they didn't like the way that the uh, economy exploited people, and so they decided to build their own sort of model of how we could live. Does it seem like it's working, like having been there and checked it out? Uh, yes and no. It's working in a sense they didn't expect, which is they have 1,500 people per year come out there and spend anywhere from a couple days to a couple weeks. And people go away feeling like their life has changed, just being so inspired by this vision of um, radical simplicity, nonviolent resistance, and sort of uh, manual labor, you might say. Um, the other part that has not uh, fared as well is there's not very many people who have wanted to join them permanently. <laughs> there's not very many people who can take this. Well, isn't part of it that you have to give away any savings you have, not to them, but to some kind of cause that you believe in? Absolutely. They believe in, in living on faith. They're very influenced by Gandhi. And so they uh, gave away. I mean, Ethan had inherited $100,000 when he was young, and he gave it all away. And so that's, yeah, that's a requirement to live there is you want to give everything away and start over and, and have faith that this community and the universe will provide. Uh, when you were staying there, what was the one thing that you missed from like normal life? Was, a, was there a creature comfort that you didn't think you were gonna really wish you had? Well, I would say peanut butter, 
but I had some in my car and I would sneak <laughs> it. Um, I mean, I missed a lot. I missed, it was, it was the summer in Missouri. It was really hot. There was, um, and we were just outside all the time. Um, I missed coffee. I missed chocolate. I missed sugar. It was an all local, sustainable, natural diet. So, um, but you know, after a couple of days of it, I, you kind of get into the rhythms of nature and, uh, and you start to be comforted by what, uh, the earth has to provide in terms of food. And I ended up loving both my visits there. Um, we're talking to Mark Sundin. His latest book is The Unsettlers, uh, In Search of the Good Life in Today's America. Um, I want to talk a little bit about this other guy that you profile in your book, The Man Who Quit Money. His name's Daniel Suelo. And um, he, uh, as we find him in the book, he's living most of the time or a lot of the time in a cave outside of Moab, Utah. And he doesn't use money for anything. And he also doesn't even really believe in bartering. He's totally off of, imagine a grid and then off of it and then imagine off of that grid. That's where Daniel Suelo is. Like, explain what, what he's going for. Well, I guess his goal was really, um, it was a religious path. He was raised fundamentalist and then his world was rocked because he was gay and he kind of, he came out and it was very difficult. He kind of was rejected in some ways by his church and his family. And but he always had this vision of he wanted to live like the prophets. He wanted to live like John the Baptist or like the Buddha or Jesus. And that obviously doesn't really go over that well in our society today. And so, <laughs> but he started going a little bit of time. He started living in the cave while he still had a job. And he started giving away all his possessions. And finally, he was down to $30 and he walked away from it. And he said he felt like the heavens had opened up and were pouring warm honey over him. It was so liberating. And... He did this for an indefinite amount of months, never committed to it, but then he, he liked it. He felt so free, and so he kept going. He's been doing it for 17 years now. How, like, what does his daily life look like? How do you even operate in the United States of America without, he doesn't have an ID, doesn't pay taxes, does not hold, like literally doesn't physically ever possess money if he can help it, right? Yeah, so he couldn't, for example, get on an airplane even if someone else bought him the ticket. Um, he couldn't leave the country because he couldn't come back without an ID. Um, so his daily life looked like you know, being in his cave. He would wake up. He would meditate. He would sort of commune with the, the animals. And he would have a, little stores of food that he had pulled from dumpsters. And he would make you know, oatmeal or whatever on a, on a fire. And then he would um, walk into town. And he would use the public library. Because he does have a blog. He does have a blog. <laughs> free. It's like all yeah. like cyber utopian. He doesn't have to pay for it. And uh, the library was free. He does have a library card, even though he doesn't have an ID. I like that that's the one <laughs> government authority he'll answer to. The Moab Public Library. There was a little, a little micro scandal in Moab when, um, when my book came out and people said, well, he's using our public tax dollars at the library. And this is on Facebook. And someone else from Moab came on and said, well, I live here and I don't use the library, so I hereby give my <laughs> tax credit to Daniel. And that solved, that shut everyone up. They're like, oh, okay. The, the, all the beans have been counted. All the rows and columns are set. Everything's good. <laughs> we are talking to writer Mark Sundin. Uh, most recently, the author of The Unsettlers. This right here is Livewire Radio from PRI. We're coming to you this week from Salt Lake City. We'll take a short break, and we'll be right back. Hey there, it's Luke. This week on the podcast, we would like to extend a special thank you to a couple of our members. Of course, we're talking about Ken Kriekenbeck of SeaTac, Washington, and Bruce and Connie Warner of Sandy, Oregon. Did you know that it's only because of support from members like Ken and Bruce and Connie that we are able to make Livewire as a podcast and as a radio show? So we just want to say thank you so much this week to Ken, Bruce, and Connie. We couldn't do it without you. Welcome back to Livewire from PRI. We are coming to you this week from the City Library in Salt Lake City. We're talking to Mark Sundin. His latest book is The Unsettlers. Um, what I noticed, at least in the two books of yours that I read, is a kind of a theme where you, you seem to be profiling people who have found a way to disconnect from all of this modernity that 
a lot of us, and I'll put myself literally at the top of the list, we embrace it because we think it's going to make our life better, and it often doesn't. But what the other theme that emerges in these books is that it seems like you're always at you're battling your own demons on this. Like you want to, you want to sort of live a simpler life, but you also love fried chicken from the grocery store deli. Right. Like, I, I still this, love it. Yeah. Is this all you just trying to work out your own feelings on like your carbon footprint and your connection to this modern society? Yeah. It's all about me. <laughs> I um. mean, to a, to a certain degree, it kind of is in that you, I mean, and, and you, you write to great effect about your own struggles with this stuff. Yeah. And when I was 23, Two, I moved to Moab and lived in my car and was sort of semi-homeless and had this very vagabond lifestyle for several years. And as I've gotten older, I still have the, the urge to like throw it all away, to, to not have an ID, to not pay taxes, to, to not have a job. And I just yearn for it. And as a nonfiction writer, when, once I had a more settled life, I could no longer write about my own life because it was pretty conventional. So I had to go find these people who were fulfilling my own fantasies in some way and, and profile them. But I mean, how does it impact your real life? Because like you, you go hang out in a cave with a dude for a week or you go to this place in Missouri and then what you come back to your like normal house and, and all of your normal stuff, doesn't some of that come with you still? I mean, that, that way of looking at the world? Yeah, and I, I, I carry little small reminders with me. I mean, things like I love to go outside and put my clothes on the line. It's like my, and it's the way I commune with nature sometimes. Just like, <laughs> it's in a breaks up the day. Do you have other clothes on? Or is this like, <laughs> this is a nudist thing? Or this is just, you mean you like to dry your clothes on the clothesline? I actually, uh, funny story, I, I chased the, a raccoon out of my yard and I, I had no clothes on. I was like five in the morning, my dog was barking, I ran out. I live in a city, I live in downtown Albuquerque, and there was a, four raccoons in the tree. And did you, did you chase them off? I ushered them off. I was actually kind of afraid of the uh, raccoon. Yeah. yeah. Like, and the raccoon was bigger than my dog, so. And you're naked. And I'm naked. Yeah. Luckily it was the backyard. <laughs> It's a miracle you're even here with us, Mark Sundin. <laughs> Do you think that there is a, a, a universe in which large numbers, like statistically significant numbers of Americans could embrace, maybe not the moneyless life, because that is like, I mean, that's like you're Siddhartha by the side of the road, just turning invisible at some point. But like the people that are, that are in the unsettlers who've just learned to grow their own food and learned to use less resources. Do you see a, a future in which large numbers of people in this country might embrace that? I mean, on the one side, I've got my doomsday um, scenario in which we run out of fossil fuels and then everyone has to live this way. Right. This will eventually take care of itself. <laughs> right. Basically. Right. Um, and in the short term, before that happens, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't think people are going to be guilted or shamed into it, but I think I do see the rippling of an awakening of people feeling really dissatisfied with the cycle of spending and earning and wasting and, and uh, using electronic devices, what it is, it, 18 hours a day, I think that's the average now. So I do see people moving in that direction. I'm not sure which scenario is going to get here sooner. <laughs> yeah, because I guess if one doesn't happen, if people don't voluntarily embrace this, then uh, what do they say, you know, nature bats last, right? Right, exactly. <laughs> um, uh, we're talking to Mark Sundin. Uh, author of The Unsettlers here on Livewire. I'm wondering, for people that aren't ready to like move into a cave or move to a sustainable farm, is there something that people that are still in, in your research and in your reporting on this, is there like some small things that we can do, we who are still living in basically the normal world but want to be a little bit less terrible to the universe? Yeah, and I, I guess the maybe... I would say follow your heart and that'll tell you what you want to do. Like for me, I can't get away from the fried chicken because that's a difficult sacrifice, but I find it really easy to not, easy to not have a, a clothes dryer or a television or a smartphone because I don't like those things. And the other thing to do is if, I mean, if the only thing you like to do is shop and trade stocks on the internet, um, look into that and say, how can I do this differently? Because there's a lot of room for changing behavior in the way that you earn money and spend money. And that might, you may never go vegan, you may never live in a, in, a, in a tiny house, but if you might divest those stocks that someone inherited to you from ExxonMobil, that actually might make more difference in the long run. 
So you're saying there are like there are small things that we can do that will actually accrete to something substantial. In the long term, yes, and in the short term, you'll just feel better. And you know, if you're doing work that you find meaningful that gives you joy, maybe you won't need those things that that seem to vex us and tempt us. Mark Sundin, everybody, right here on Livewire. Thank you. All right, please welcome back to the stage the 16-year-old Sammy Brew. Uh, I'm going to play a song called uh, I Never Said. here on Livewire. His latest album, I Am Nice, is available now. That's going to do it for our show this week. we got to thank all the people who helped make it possible. Our guests, Mark Sundin, Scott Carrier, and, of course, Sammy Brew. Livewire is brought to you in part by Alaska Airlines, Whole Foods Market, and Fully. Hotel accommodations in Portland generously provided by Provenance Hotels. A big thanks this week to Tommy Hamby, Elizabeth King, Alejandro Campos, and everybody at the City Library. Also, special thanks to Michael McLean from Utah Humanities, Jesse Ellis at KCPW, and Gail Ewer at KUER. Robin Tenenbaum is the executive producer and co-creator of Livewire. Laura Haddon is our producer and editor. And Melanie Sevchenko is our assistant editor. Caitlin Kunkel is our writer. Our house band is Jonathan Newsom and A. Walker Spring. Molly Pettit is our technical director. Randy Hastings did house sound. And our on-air mix was by Corey Schreppel. Thanks, as always, to the wonderful folks at Carlson Audio as well. Our development director is Lauren Masterson. Laura Harden is our marketing director. Our operations manager is Tim Harkins. Additional funding provided by the Oregon Arts Commission and the James F. and Marion L. Miller Foundation. Livewire is made possible by the generous support of our members this week. We would like to thank member Miles Ellenby of Portland, Oregon, for his support. Thank you so much, Miles. If you want more information about our show or how you can listen to our podcast or sign up for our newsletter, it's all available over there at livewireradio.org. I'm Luke Burbank. Thank you so much for listening, and we will see you next week. Said I didn't love you. I said I'm. I said I'm sorry. I said I'm sorry. I said I'm sorry.
Thank you. Sammy Brew. Right here on Livewire. PRI Public Radio International. Dear Livewire, when we first met, I was really shy. I had no idea we'd spend so much time together or that you'd be one to fill my heart with with joy and make me want to be a better person. Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't know you were here. I was busy reading a review from one of our many, many rapturously smitten listeners. Oh, wait, actually, no, sorry. This is from Elena. Anyway, the point is, uh, it would be really helpful if you wanted to leave us a review Feel free to say really nice things about us, and uh, we'll even read them now and then on the show. So you might hear your review of Livewire read on the program itself. Uh, Reviews help other people hear about the show, and then we can keep doing this for a long, long time, because we love having this job. Uh, Thank you so much if you've left a review, and if you're about to leave a review, you can go ahead and do it right where you get the podcast. 